I love getting to officiate weddings. It's really probably one of my favorite things that I get to do as a minister, which is strange because I hate going to weddings. And saying that out loud, I should probably evaluate the fact that I only like being a part of them if I'm a central figure inside of it. So there's probably some sort of deep, weird thing happening there. But I really do love officiating weddings. And one of the things that's a constant, one of the things that's a mainstay in a wedding ceremony, really for Christian weddings, and you hear it in non-Christian weddings as well, is this passage out of 1 Corinthians 13. And you can almost feel people's eyes roll when the minister starts to say that love is patient, love is kind, because you've just heard it so many times before, and you've heard it at so many weddings before. And while it really is an important part of a marriage relationship, while that really should be a part of our wedding ceremonies, the fact that we've heard it that much has segmented it into our minds as just something that's said at weddings. And so we've taken this passage of scripture and the love that it communicates and the love that it discusses, and we've reduced it down to simple romantic affection. When in reality, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the kind of love that should be a defining, all-consuming characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We've been looking through the book of Galatians in chapter 5, and we've been talking about the freedom that Christ came to bring. And we see that freedom expressed in what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at each one of those fruits of the Spirit individually and how those things help us to express the freedom that Christ has given us through his death and his resurrection. And so today, jumping into 1 Corinthians to help us illustrate what love means, we're going to look at how to live freely by loving freely and how to be consumed and driven by a Christ-like love that marks us as one of his children. And so from 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, this is the word of God. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. 
Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you first and foremost that you have loved us in a way that we could never understand and in a way that we could never imagine. God, we thank you that we are able to love because you first loved us. And that this love that you called us to is a mark and a reminder of the freedom that we have through the death and resurrection and the salvation of Christ. So teach us to be people who are marked by love. Teach us to be people who are consumed by love, who are driven by love, that love would be the defining characteristic of who we are as your children. And help us to leave this place this morning with that kind of love, a love for you and a love for our neighbors that reflects your goodness and your glory and your love. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we see here about love is that a Christian life without love is nothing. A Christian life without love is nothing. In Genesis 4, we see the story of two brothers named Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. Cain took care of all of the produce, and Abel was a shepherd. He tended to the flock of sheep. And it came time for them to give an offering to God, and so they gave out of what they had. Because Cain was a farmer, he took some produce, and because Abel was a shepherd, he was able to take a lamb. But when they offered their sacrifices, God accepted the sacrifice of Abel, but rejected the sacrifice of Cain. Now, out of context, this this story is troubling because it looks like divine favoritism. That somehow the type of offering is what gave God some sort of pleasure or some sort of dis just the dislike for the offering that Cain's gift was somehow inferior to Abel's because of what it was. But when we look at the rest of the story, and especially when we take into mind who God is and how God is revealed throughout scripture, we see that's not the case at all because it wasn't the offering that was given up. It wasn't the sacrifice that was made, but it was the heart with which it was sacrificed. You see, Abel took the best of what he had. Abel took the most important thing that he had, the the first picture of God's grace in his life, this first calf, this first sheep. He came and offered that to God, and Cain took just the stuff on the ground. And then when we see it all play out, and Cain is overwhelmed with jealousy and anger because of how God responded to their offerings, we see that inside Cain's heart was not love, it wasn't affection, it wasn't worship towards God. But it was a desire to have himself elevated and desire to have himself received by God for what he offered. In the book of Galatians, we saw that there was a problem in Galatia with the way that things were being offered. Some false teachers had come into the church and they had convinced some of these Galatian Christians that Jesus wasn't enough that they needed something more to be a real Christian. And so they started following the Old Testament ceremonial laws. They started following things like the dietary restrictions because they believed it made them somehow more Christian or an elevated version of what they were called to be in Christ. And these people weren't returning to the law out of some sort of sense of love or devotion to God. This wasn't a way that they wanted to grow closer in their walk with Christ. This was done out of fear and out of a desire to be something more on their own. They thought, if I could just add these things to my walk with Christ, then I'll be somehow more special than the people that don't carry this law with them. 
In 1 Corinthians 13 here, Paul is talking to another church about what it looks like to use your spiritual gifts. This giftedness that God gives to Christians. And in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the beauty of the church. The church is one body made up of different parts. And all of those parts have a specific function, a specific purpose, and a specific gifting. And the church is beautiful because it's diverse. But sometimes diversity can bring division. Because what happens and what could be happening here in 1 Corinthians and what certainly was happening in Galatians is people were looking around at all the things that they had to offer and measuring themselves up. And it's easy to start looking around and say, well, these gifts are the most important and these gifts aren't as beneficial. And so if somebody has these gifts, they're more important to the life of the church. They're more important to Christ. And if you don't have those gifts, then you're probably not as important. And so sometimes that can create jealousy, sometimes that can create bitterness, sometimes that can create feelings of superiority or inferiority, and it can cause divisions. And we do that in our churches today. We elevate some things to a point of hyper-spirituality. And so it usually happens, first and foremost, with what takes place on the stage. Because if you look forward when somebody's preaching or when somebody's leading the music or when somebody is using their musical giftedness playing an instrument, it's easy to see those things and think, man, they're up there in front of everybody. They're putting this on display. Those must be the most important things. Those must be the most important gifts. And then we start to, to look down at the list and start to find our place here and say, well, I don't do that, so I must not be as good as this person. And I don't do this, so I must not be as good as this person. But I am good at this, so maybe I'm higher up on the list than, than this person. And we just build some sort of hierarchy of what it means to be a follower of Christ based on what we can do, based on what we have, or based on the giftedness that God has given us. But in chapter 13, Paul starts talking about these gifts. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And when we look at this list of what Paul is laying out here, these are very good things. Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, that's a beautiful gift to have, to be able to communicate in such an incredible and awesome way. Having prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and knowledge, that's a good thing. To be able to take hold of God's word and understand the deep mysteries and the beautiful truths inside of it is an important and an awesome thing. To be able to have the faith to remove mountains is an incredible gift in the life of a Christian and to the life of the church. To be someone who can give away all that you have or deliver your body up, being willing to sacrifice everything you are and everything you have, that is an incredibly beneficial gift in the life of a Christian. But if we have those things and we do those things, but we don't have love, all of those things mean nothing. You see, the gifts that God gives us, the ability to do the work that God has called us to do, that's not the end in and of themselves, but these things are means that God gives us so that when we mix those things with love, they have the power to glorify God and to change the world. 
That's why as Paul is talking about the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, the last verse there says, and I will show you a still more excellent way to be able to view all of these gifts as they really are, that they're good in and of themselves, but when we put them together with love, they are excellent. It's the way that we were designed to live. In Galatians, Paul talked about the desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh, the things that are opposite to the Christian life. And we saw that those things were all selfish. They were self-serving. They were self-focused. They don't look to the needs of others. They don't look to the interest or the well-being of others, but they served ourselves. And that is actually the complete opposite of what love is designed to be. Tim Keller describes love as this. He says that love means to serve a person for their good intrinsic value, not what that person brings to you. Its opposite is fear, self-protection and abusing people. The counterfeit of love, the fake version of love is selfish affection, where you're attracted to someone and treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself. You see, if we do all of these things, if we have all of these gifts and we use them for our own benefit or so that people will look at us and think that we're special or that we have something to offer and that they need us, if we have these gifts, if we cling to the law, if we use our freedom for all of these things just to gain attention for ourselves or just use people in the life of the church because it makes us feel better about me, then that's not love at all. I'm just a noisy gong. I'm nothing. I gain nothing if there is not love motivating everything that I do. The poet and the songwriter Leonard Cohen, in his poem Titles, had this line. He says, I hated everyone, but I acted generously, and no one found me out. And I wonder how true that is about me on a day-to-day basis. I wonder how true that is about us as Christians and about people who are involved in the life of church, that we do the right things, that we come to church and we participate and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers and we offer up the confessions and we go on mission trips and we bear the name of Christ and we try our best to look like Christians because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do when in reality we just kind of hate everybody inside and just hope that if we do enough stuff that no one will find out how we really feel and who we really are. You see, the truth about love is that it doesn't matter what your church attendance record is. It doesn't matter what your giving statement looks like at the end of the year. It doesn't matter how many notches you have on your mission trip belt or all of the things that you do in the life of the church. If it isn't motivated by love, then it's nothing. If it isn't motivated by love, then it's not beneficial to you or to anyone else because what you can do is not anywhere near as important as how you can love. Because as we're going to see in a minute, Christianity is founded on the love of God and it is continued by the love of God poured out through his people. And unless we are motivated by that love, we're not doing the work of God. We're just doing our own thing. Last week, we looked at the importance of falling in love with freedom before we run in God's grace. That we have to fall in love with the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And the same thing is true about the work that we do in our lives. The work that we do as followers of Christ, the work that we do in the life of the church and in our community, before we go out and we do those things, we have to learn to have those things founded and rooted in love. 
a love for Jesus, and a love for those around us. Like we said, Paul said, if any of these things are done without love, then they're meaningless. But if I speak in tongues of men and angels and I have love, then there's something incredible about that. Then those words have the power to change lives and to change eternities. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and I have love, then I'm able to take those truths and see them in light of the gospel and share those with other people. If I have the faith to move the mountains and I'm motivated by love, then I'm going to go out and do whatever Christ has called me to do. If I'm willing to give away all my stuff and offer myself up as a sacrifice and it's done out of love, then that's something that's going to enable us to reach people in a way that we never could before. The gifts that God has given you are all good and important things, no matter what they are. And when used freely with the love of Christ, there are no limits to the impact that each and every one of us can have on the kingdom of God, especially when we use those gifts in love together with one another. So a Christian life without love is nothing. Next, we see that a Christian love reflects Christian fruit. A Christian love reflects Christian fruit. The English language is a strange language. We have a lot of words that sound like other words. We have words that are spelled the same and spoken the same, but they mean completely different things. And so it's incredibly possible to be speaking to someone who speaks the same language and use the same words, but be meaning completely different things and get lost. And that's especially true when it comes to the word love. Because in the same day, I can tell someone that I love pizza and that I love my daughters. I can tell someone that I love my mountain bike, and I can tell someone that I love my wife. And I think we can make the differential there to know that I don't love pizza equally to my daughters most days. I try not to. I don't love some kind of object as much as I love my wife because that's, that's silly. It doesn't make sense. But the word love is so broad that we can use it in a variety of ways, and it can get really confusing. And so when we talk about Christian love, when Paul talks about love, what does he mean? What kind of love is he talking about? But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. Paul tells us exactly the kind of love that he's talking about. Starting in verse 4, he defines it. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the Reformation Study Bible, there's a note about this passage. It talks about how Christian love is described in 1 Corinthians 13, and it says that it's a total lack of self-concern, and that lack of self-concern is breathtaking. It seeks the neighbor's good. And its true measure is how much it gives to that end. Love is a principle of action rather than emotion. It is a matter of doing things for people out of compassion for them, whether or not we feel personal affection for them. It's by their active love to one another that Jesus' disciples can be recognized. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture, this isn't just a passage of Scripture for married couples. It's important A marriage should be defined on this kind of love. A marriage should be rooted in this kind of love. These should be the things that are true about marriage relationships. But it's not just for married couples and married people. 
So often we can take this passage and write it off as just a romantic affection. But this is the kind of love that's meant to define the lives of Christians. It's supposed to define who we are and consume our lives. And as we look at how Paul describes this kind of love, it should sound somewhat familiar if you've been here the last few weeks. Because he says love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It sounds a whole lot like when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Love is patient, and as Christians we're called to have the fruit of the Spirit that is patient. Love is kind, and we're called to be people who are kind and gentle and loving. It's not envy or boastful. Those are the things that Paul described as the work of the flesh, things that cause division and dissension in our lives. This idea of love represents the fruit of the Spirit. All of the fruit of the Spirit are contained in this idea of love. And when we were talking about what the fruit of the Spirit are, we saw that they were designed to reflect the character of God. That when we put on the fruit of the Spirit, when we exemplify those in our lives, that we are going to be reflecting the character and the nature of God and who He is. And so the fruit of the Spirit teaches us to reflect the character of God. And because God is love, the love we show should reflect the love of God and His character. And so it makes sense that this kind of love would reflect all of the other fruit of the Spirit that we're called to as Christians. The love that we're meant to have, the love that we're called to reflect in our lives is a love that is selfless because we serve a selfless Savior who even though he was in very nature God, didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became nothing on our behalf. That shows us the definition of what selfless love looks like. Our love should be patient because we serve a patient God who loves us patiently, even though we fall short, even though we mess up, even though we don't meet the standard required. He is patient with us and he is gentle with us when we're in need. Love is kind because we serve a kind and gracious creator. And then it was out of the kindness of God that he draws us into repentance. The kind of love that drives our work must come from God because no other kind of love will do. No other kind of love will teach us to reflect the fruit of the Spirit in all that we do except the love that is modeled after the love that Christ has for us. And so we have to evaluate the way that we love. We have to ask, where does my love come from? Who does my love reflect? Does it reflect me and my selfish desires? Or does it reflect the selfless giving love of Christ? It's really easy to find out because we just have to pay attention to who our love serves. But the kind of love that comes from God reflects God because it reflects the fruit of the Spirit. And that kind of love that comes from God serves and loves our neighbors as ourselves. So Christian life without love is nothing. Christian love reflects Christian fruit. And then we're told that Christian love is eternal. Christian love is eternal. There's maybe no sin that we have an easier time dismissing and not caring about like lies, like dishonesty. We even have a name for them. We call them little white lies, right? 
And we think, what's the harm in just a little lie? So if I can tell a lie that causes me to have some sort of either temporary satisfaction or deflects a really nasty situation for a little bit and so I can be at peace, it's probably worth it, right? Because we view temporary satisfaction as greater than eternal goodness. We view temporary comfort and contentment as more important in our lives than long-term eternal things. And that's because it's hard to see the eternal through the temporal. Because as we've talked about before, the temporary stuff is the most obvious. When we have difficult circumstances in our lives, when things are hurting, or sometimes when things are just uncomfortable or a little awkward, that's all that we can see and all that we can focus on. And so it's hard to look beyond that temporary discomfort to see how much better eternity looks through Christ. How much more important it is to be men and women of integrity instead of convenience. How much more important it is to see things through God's eyes than our own. But if it's hard to get past the temporary sins in our lives for the sake of comfort, letting go of temporary good things is even harder. And here in this passage, Paul starts talking about things that are going to pass away. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. And those are good things. Prophecies are good. The study of tongues, it's a good gift that God has given. Knowledge, all of these things are important. All of these things matter. But here Paul is telling us they're all going to pass away. And the only thing that will remain is love. But love will always remain because God will always remain. And this call to love means that we're, as Christians, not called simply to eternal life, but eternal living. You see, our thought process about what Christianity looks like is so bizarre and so messed up. Because we think of Jesus and his salvation just as a way to one day go to heaven forever, and that somehow eternal life will start down the road after we die, and then that's when all the good things will take place. But what we see in Scripture is something much different. That when we're saved by the grace and mercy of God, that our eternity starts now. That we've been saved and redeemed by the grace of God. That we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That we've been made new and that the old has passed and the new has come. And from the moment of our conversion, we are on a road to eternity. And so we need to be people who live like we believe that. Not that we're just waiting for something to come somewhere down the road, but that we believe that that something is already taking effect in our lives. And so we need to become people who practice now the things that will last forever. To show the world that we believe that something better really is coming and that it's already began now. And so what happens then is as we start to love as Christ loves, as we start to value this kind of love that Christ has taught us to show for other people, as we put that to place in our lives, we'll start to pull back the window of eternity. We'll start to get a glimpse of what our eternity in Christ looks like. But even more important than that, as we love others as Christ loved us, as we love our neighbor as ourself, as we do what Paul says and count other people as more significant than we count ourselves, what we're doing is showing them the hope that we have in Christ that something better is coming. We're not just reflecting what Jesus did for us through his cross, through his death, and through his resurrection. We're pointing them towards the eternal hope and the eternal love that we have in Jesus by loving them with something that will never pass away. 
Christian love is eternal, and that requires that we start looking to the eternal now and loving people like we believe it will last forever. And then finally, Christian love is supreme. Christian love is supreme. In my kindergarten class, when I was in kindergarten a long, long, long time ago, it was a very rewards-driven kind of thing. And so there was negative consequences for bad actions, but there were also positive rewards for things that you did well. I didn't get a lot of those. I remember Miss Meddling had this jar of what she called golden nuggets that were spray-painted rocks, looking back in hindsight. But in kindergarten, that was a pretty fantastic thing. And I, I can remember only getting one the entire year. So most of these kids were getting three a day sometimes. I got one. I like to talk a lot. And so that disqualified me most of the time from the golden nugget lottery there. But if you got enough golden nuggets, then you got to be first in line. You got to be the line leader, which is kind of a weird thing to get excited about. But everybody wanted to be the line leader. And I think it's because even from a very young age, we realize that order matters. And that if you're first in line, that is a physical picture to the rest of the class that you are best, right? That you are first, that you are the most important, that you have the most golden nuggets, that you are, maybe in our minds, it's because I'm the favorite, right? I'm at the front of the line, I'm at the head of the class, I'm the most important. Order matters to us, and order mattered to Paul. And when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, as he goes into Galatians 5, and 23, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a reason why Paul starts with love. There's a reason why the first and the most important fruit of the Spirit is love. And Paul solidifies that in verse 13. He says, of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, So faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul talks about these three crucial and important components of the Christian life. These things that abide, these things that have such an important and profound meaning in the life of a Christian. Faith is, is the origin of our salvation. That it's the gift of faith that brings us salvation, that makes us part of the family of God, that makes us his sons and daughters. We see in Scripture that we are saved by faith through grace. Faith is the cornerstone of the redemption that we have in Christ. Hope is this beautiful gift that God has given us to remind us that the way things are now is not the way things will already be, but we are hoping for something better. We are looking for something more perfect, that one day he who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And so hope matters. Faith and hope are two incredibly important parts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They're important. They are salvation-focused. But the greatest of those things is love. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. You see, the most Christ-like thing that we can do is love. When Jesus told us the greatest commandments, he said the first one is to love, to love God. And the second one is like it, to love others around you. The best way to live as a Christian is not to do our best to look like whatever we think a Christian is supposed to look like, but the best way to live as a follower of Christ is to love like Jesus. 
We have to recognize and prioritize our life in such a way that love is first, that love is supreme, and that love is the catalyst for everything we do and everything we are. Because faith is born out of love. That it was because God loved us first that we were even able to take hold of that faith. Love is born, or excuse me, hope is born out of love because it was the love that Christ showed for us that gives us the confidence that he is going to finish the work that he started through his death and resurrection. It was love that saved us. It's love that keeps us. And because of that, love should be the most important part of who we are as followers of Jesus because Christian love is supreme. And so this Advent season and every season in the life of the church, we have the calling to give. We have the calling to sing songs and confess and pray and read scripture. We have the calling to minister to other people. We have the calling to go out and to reach people for the cause of Christ. We have the calling to do good for other people and to be good for the cause of Christ. But we have to be sure that everything we do, we do in love. And to always remember that he loved us first. And that as his image bears, we have the calling and the responsibility to go out and to love as Christ has loved us. And so let's be people who are consumed by, defined by, and known by the love that we have for Christ and the love that we have for one another.